As we get ready to do the announcements, it reminded me of what somebody sent to me today, and I thought, well, this is a good reminder for most people. So it's a T-shirt, and on the T-shirt it says, it's in the bulletin. It's been there for weeks. (laughs) So it's a People zone out when they see announcements. Baptism service on September 3rd at 1 p.m. at the Stasi's in Katy. Continue to pray for Jeff because he's in Brazil until uh, the 29th, which is Tuesday, I believe, or uh, Tuesday, or Monday or Tuesday. Okay, um, Monday, I guess. And then the Israel tour next year. Still working on that. June 6th to 19th, approximately, and. Um, Give or take a day. So that's, that's the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and prepare to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to come together with the body of believers, to be refreshed by your word, to have our thinking challenged, to come to understand what it means to submit to your word and to think biblically. Father, we thank you for your word and the way it works on each of us to challenge us and to correct us and to then instruct us on the right path. So, Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that it will help us in many ways to begin to think more biblically about the topics we cover and also to understand what you wrote uh, through Paul and this epistle to the Philippians. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Tonight is our 17th lesson in Philippians, and we have uh, had a departure for the last uh, seven lessons, actually, uh, teaching on the day of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, rewards, judgments, and the overcomer. So now that we have that uh, behind us, and gives us a greater appreciation and understanding of what is behind some of the the verbiage that Paul is is using here, then it helps us to see things that are that are going on here because he he uses different words and phrases in this section that are used in those various contexts that we talked about before, and so tonight we're going to go back into uh, Philippians. One, the last time we taught on this on Lesson 10 was June the 30th. 
So I know that everybody here remembers exactly what we covered that night, and it's in detail in your notes. So for the two or three of you that that's not true for, we'll have a little review so we can get back into uh, the flow of Paul's thinking in chapter 1. So the first uh, three verses that, that we've been looking at in this section, we're in 179. And what we're going to see connected here in the language is the concept of fellowship. The word or a form of the word, cognate, uh, is used two or three times through here. Also, it's connected in here and in other places with love and also tied to spiritual growth. So all of this is fundamental to appreciating, understanding, following uh, what Paul is talking about in this particular section. Now, the section actually begins in verse 3. Verse 3 through 8 is one sentence. Verses 8 through, or excuse me, verses 9 through 11 is one sentence. And it expresses Paul's thanksgiving, which is expressed in verse 3. For He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy. So here he just, you know, expresses his joy, the joy that he has when he thinks about the Philippians and his gratitude for their financial participation in his ministry. And so this is a very upbeat, very joyful, very positive statement that he is making here. And he expresses what he prays for in his thanksgiving, starting in verse 5, going down uh, and through verse 7. To finish out the sentence, he says, For your, and I've retranslated this, for your partnership in the gospel, and you could translate your financial partnership in the gospel, because that's that's what we studied the last time, your financial partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who had begun a good work, uh, and I've added for, for clarity of financial partnership, that's what this is talking about. That's uh, often misunderstood. It's taken where he who begun a good work in you is salvation or sanctification. It's not that. We have to deal with context. Um, has The one who began a good work, a financial partnership in you, will complete it until the day of Christ. Now, in your salvation, your sanctification, he'll complete it until when? The day you die. But here he's saying this work goes on until the day of uh, uh, until the day of Christ, which is the judgment seat of Christ. Because as we studied, when we as a church contribute to a ministry, then we participate in the fruit of that ministry. So over the last 22 years, uh, the Word of God Bible College has produced, I don't know, somewhere around 200, 230 graduates. Not all of those go into, into any kind of what we would consider full-time ministry, uh, and that's true for most seminaries. It's amazing how many, some of the smartest guys I knew when I was in seminary ended up going, uh, going into some other line of work. 
so th- half the guys that go through any seminary usually don't end up as as pastors, but that's okay because they have a rich contribution to whatever congregation uh, that they're they're a part of. So Jim has uh, produced a number of pastors there in Turkey, having a ministry in the Muslim community in Turkey. There in uh, like like Eger, who we support as a missionary in Jatomer. There in Belarus. Uh, they are in uh, other countries, Czech Republic. Now they're scattered even more, and they are involved in ministry, and that's part of our fruit. That is part of what God accrues to our benefit at the judgment seat of Christ. So that is, and, and so Paul is talking about how the fruit of the Philippians' uh, financial support of his ministry uh, accrues to their account, and uh, and so you think about that. They're supporting Paul, so that Paul can go. After Paul left uh, Philippi, he went to Thessaloniki, he went to Berea, he went down to Athens, he went to Corinth, he went to uh, uh, Ephesus, and in each of those places, there are numerous converts, and those converts, many of them, are going out and they're going to other areas and and planting churches and ministering in communities. And that fruit has gone on from generation to generation for the last uh, 20 centuries. And all that fruit accrues to the Philippians for their support of Paul. And every one of you who've read, you know, all both of you who've read Paul's epistles, you become part of that fruit that is was financially supported by the Philippians. Isn't that amazing? And God, who's omniscient, knows how all of this works out. He's got the perfect formula for uh, for factoring all of that in, and that becomes part of the, the the fruit of all of those people. And the same thing is true for us and the people we pray for, the people we financially support, all of that. Is all part of that. So that's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the good work of sanctification. We'll, I'll review that in just a minute. And then he says in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you on my mind, inasmuch as both in my chains, because he is a prisoner in Rome, although he's not chained at this point. This was the first imprisonment. He's just using that as a as a metaphor for imprisonment uh, in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are our fellow partners with me of grace. Although it's possible that he was actually in chains in Jerusalem or on the, on the ship that was shipwrecked on its way to Rome, um, we don't know. But that just summarizes his, his um uh, imprisonment, and then the conclusion is, you are fellow partners with me of grace. That's that. That's that word, sun koinonia. It's uh, it's just koinonia plus the sun. Sun means with, and so it a- adds that idea of a, of, a, of an accompaniment or fellow fellow partners. So the two questions we need to a- we asked here was for what is Paul thankful, and for what is he confident. And the problem is, as I pointed out, there are two basic interpretations here. The most popular way to understand this verse is that it relates to salvation. He began a good work in you, that is your salvation, and he will continue it through sanctification 
all the way to glorification. But that's contextually not what he's talking about. And that is used by those who, in lordship salvation or in Calvinism, to support their view of perseverance of the saints, that if you're truly saved, if you truly believed, if you genuinely believed, sincerely believed, and remember, I always say that nowhere in the Scripture do you have an adverb modifying the word belief or faith. God never speaks, either you believe or you don't. God knows whether you're believing or not. And God never qualifies it by sincerely, truly, genuinely believe. He just, all the scriptures say is, if you believe. It's, it, we have another word that people always mess up, and that's the word unique. What does unique mean? One of a kind. You cannot modify it and make it more unique. It's really unique. I cringe at that. It's truly unique. No, you don't modify it. It's either unique or it's not, but you can't make it more unique by putting an adverb with it. So belief is the same way. It, you believe or you don't. And, uh, and so the Calvinist position just doesn't hold water. So we have the three stages of salvation. Justification happens when we trust in Christ as Savior. And then... Uh, we then we enter into the spiritual life, and we may or may not grow. In Calvinism, that fifth point, the P for perseverance, sanctification, that is spiritual life, spiritual growth, is inevitable to the one who is truly saved. But to grow, you have to apply the word. But if the only part of the word that you ever get is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, then you don't know anything about how to grow spiritually. And we have a hard time with that because everybody we know has ten Bibles in their house and everybody knows the word. But guess what? In America now, there are lots of people who don't know the Bible at all. They don't know anything about it. And what they think they know is a misconception. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, and I was in Mrs. Adams' English class, and we had to, we were first beginning to learn how to write thesis papers. You know, you write a two or three page paper, and it was about, something about Christmas was the topic. And she told our class, because this happened in another class, that there was a boy that came up to her, and since it was about Christmas, of course, it had to talk about Jesus. And this boy asked her, said, well, who's Jesus? I've never heard of him. You know, and that was a long time ago. And now we have, we have huge segments of this country that, that never hear the word Jesus other than as some form of profanity. So you have to, and, and historically, you go back into the Middle Ages People were illiterate. People lived in isolation. They did not have their own copy of the Scripture. They probably never heard anything about Christianity other than the gospel. And so how are they going to learn what the Christian life involved, how they're supposed to behave as a Christian, unless they're taught it? So there, there's, there, there's, you can't have growth without application of the word, and if you don't hear the word, there's no application. 
And people think, well, you know, if they're really saved, God's going to get the word to them. You need to get in touch with history, truly. Okay, so at phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. You were saved. At phase two, you're saved from the power of sin. You are being saved. Uh, And phase three is you're saved from the presence of sin. You don't have a sin nature anymore when you're glorified. So we have these two views. The uh, reform view is, um, or, or our view is, that God graciously works in the believer's life to enable them to grow if they are willing. And the reform view is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ who is truly regenerate will persevere in faith and good works until God glorifies them following their death or, or the rapture. And an example of this I cited was from the French Confession of Faith of 1559. We believe also that faith is given to the elect, so it's not something generated from the individual. It is saving faith is not the same as every other kind of faith. It is a distinctive kind of faith. You can't prove that from the Scripture. What makes saving faith different from non-saving faith is the object of faith. You can believe that I'll be saved by good works, and you're not going to be saved. You can believe I'll be saved by the, observing the sacraments, but you're not going to be saved. You're going to be saved because you believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe the right thing, Christ died for my sins, then you're going to be saved. So in Calvinism, in Reformed Calvinism, the faith that is given to the elect uh, not only introduces them into the right way, but also to make them continue in it, to make them continue in it to the end. For as it is God who hath begun the work, he will also perfect it. See, that's a quote from this th- this verse. John MacArthur says the same thing. The ongoing work of grace in the Christian's life is as much a certainty. See, it's inevitable. If you're really saved, you're going to grow. As much a certainty as justification, glorification, or any other aspect of God's redeeming work. And then he quotes Philippians 1.6. Salvation is holy God's work, and he finishes what he starts. His grace is sufficient and potent. It cannot be defective in any regard. See, those last two sentences are perfectly true. His application is not. So... We look at the outline of Ephesians. We're in the first chapter. In the first 11 verses, we have a prayer. Then he expresses his joy over the expansion of the gospel. And he expands because the Philippians have financially contributed to his ministry. So he's been able to go places. And that is that expansion is covered uh, Philippians 1, 12 to 26, and then you have the uh, body of the epistle, and then the conclusion in 4, uh, 10 to 20 comes back to this same topic of their financial uh, contribution to support uh, Paul in his ministry. So we have to ask this question, what is fellowship? Because the Greek word that we have here is the word koinonia, And many people have inadequate views of what fellowship is, biblical fellowship. 
We often use the word in English to refer to social interaction. You go off with the guys for a boys' weekend, and you had great fellowship. Was Did you talk about Jesus? No. Did you talk about the Bible? No. That's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship has the Word of God and our relationship to the Lord at the center of it. So you go off and you have dinner with a friend and the whole time you're talking about what what you're learning in Bible class and you're learning we're talking about what you're learning you ask questions what you're reading in your Bible that's fellowship it, it is related to Christ that's what biblical biblical fellowship is all about and it has that idea of partnership and an article written in 1932 that is an excellent article on Koinonia, uh, uh, J.Y. Campbell says, the basic concept implies a participation with another in a common cause or goal. So it's two or three people partnered in going somewhere together, or a whole congregation partnered in going in a biblical direction uh, together having something in common with one another. And in these passages, Paul uses koinonia, and it's cognate. A cognate is a related word based on the same root. Uh, soon koinonia, when you have a G and a K together in Greek, it, the G is pronounced like an N. So, and if you have a double G, it's enga, engus, not egus. And if it's like this, it's not sug koinonia, it's soon koinonia. So it is, uh, this is a key word, this is the two key words which we find again and again, and we'll see these examples in Philippians 1 7, which we're um, about to look at this evening. Paul says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me. And that is how the New King James translates it, as partakers. And I would use a word uh, like partner. You've partnered together. Uh, Philippians 4.15, now this is in the conclusion. The conclusion is going to reiterate things that are that are referenced in the introduction of most epistles. It's good literature. And in that, in the close, Paul says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, that is in the beginning of his gospel ministry when he left Philippi, uh, when I departed from Macedonia on his way to Thessalonica, no church shared, and that's the word koinonia. No church partnered with him. No other churches were contributing financially to his needs. So he says, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. That really set those Philippian believers apart. They were generous, and they knew that Paul had to eat, and God moved them uh, to provide for him and to uh, support him financially. In the previous verse to 415, Paul said, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. And the ESV 
states, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And I think that's, that is a good rendering. They shared in his adversity. Um, they, they had, they translate koinonia as sharing. So that, that brings out the idea in the word sukoinonia that it means to participate in with somebody or to be connected or to share, uh, something. So they were partners in my distress is one way, uh, to translate that. And 415 then, you, no church shared koinonia. No church contributed or partnered with me in my financial support. So we go back to 1-5, uh, for your partnership for the gospel, that is, toward that goal of the gospel ministry from the first day until now. And I covered other verses like Romans 15-26, where the word koinonia relates to the contribution for the poor. Second uh, Corinthians 9-13 says, while through the proof of this ministry. Now here's an interesting thing about the word proof. The Greek word there is dakime. Now, when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 3 in the judgment seat of Christ, and it talks about the evaluation, that's the word dakimazo, that's the verb. Or you have the word dakimas, which is a noun. But they're all, the, they're all related. They're all the same word that emphasizes uh, demonstrating something, evaluating something, uh, testing or trying something. It would be used in uh, metallurgy when you uh, are try, trying or testing the metal, evaluating the metal, um, and this is all part of it. So the ESV then translates this by their approval. See, you're approving of something. When you evaluate it positively, you're looking for ways to approve it. That's what we saw at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a positive evaluation. So by their, they, uh, ESV translates it by their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. That's contribution. That's koinonia. Now, most of us never think of fellowship as contributing financially. But biblically, that's, that's what it is. It's from koinonia, the word for for fellowship. And then he says that your partnership was from the first day until now. And so they continued, according to 415, to, to uh, support him. In verse 6, then when we have this phrase, he that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, that good work in the context is that financial support uh, of the Apostle Paul. And it's the idea is repeated again in verse 7 when it says, You all are partakers, are financial partners with me of grace. And grace there stands for his grace ministry uh, of the gospel. So then I took us to 2 Corinthians 8. And I just want to hit a couple of verses here. I don't want to read through the whole thing. He he is writing to the Corinthians, and he's shaming them. Okay, and by telling them what the, how great the Philippians have been, 
And he says that in Macedonia, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God, which had already been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's talking about their grace giving. That in a great trial or or test, it was a test of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. They gave generously from their deep poverty. Isn't that amazing? They, they, they were going to give what they could and above and beyond. It abounded. See, that's a word that we're going to see uh, several times in here. Uh, in verse 9, you're, that Paul will pray that your love may abound still more and more. So that's another common word in these, the, these two chapters. They abounded in the richness, the riches of their liberality. And then we go to verse uh, 7, or 4, actually imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship, the koinonia, the partnership, financial partnership of the ministering of the saints. And then in verse 7, we have abound again, that you may abound in everything. We have the word knowledge. See, we're going to see that in verse uh, verse 9 when Paul says, I pray that your love... Uh, will abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. So we have the word knowledge. And again, you know, twice in that verse, we have the word for abound. And then in verse 80 says, I speak not by commandment, but I'm evaluating. That's a form of the word, uh, dokimazo. I'm evaluating the integrity of your love. The word there is usually translated sincerity. Sincerity has a, a weakness to it. Because there are a lot of people who are sincerely wrong. but So it has more of the idea of their integrity, of their motivation and their love uh, for Paul by uh, financially supporting him. So these are key, key ideas that connect the, these two passages and also connect the ideas that we'll see in 1 John. 1 John talks about love and knowledge and these and spiritual growth and these ideas that we find in this opening prayer are permeate the first epistle of John. And then in verse 11 he says, but now you also must complete. Whose responsibility is to complete the work? Their responsibility. It's not that God's going to inevitably make them complete the work. They have to complete the doing of it. That is, continue through, follow through with their uh, commitment to financially uh, support Paul. So we go back to our passage there in um, in in First uh, Where's it? Philippians Philippians one seven, and we're going to work through what this verse says. It, he, notice he says, "Just as it is right." For me to think this of you all, the word right is good as far as it goes, but it is the Greek word dikaios, which is our word for righteousness, something that adheres to a divine standard. And that word is often used, of uh, a form of it, dikaiosune, is righteousness, and uh, dikaio is the word for justification. So this is a very important word, and he is saying that this is right according to a standard. He, P- P- Paul's not a postmodernist. 
He's not saying that, well, you know, it's, it's my truth. It's the right thing for me to do, but your right thing may be something else. He's setting a standard here. It's right for me to think this of you all. And we should think uh, in a generous, grateful manner to those who are helpful to us because that is, that is right and proper according to the Scripture. And he says, it's right for me to think of this to you all because I have you in my heart. Now, we have a lot of fuzzy thinking about the word heart when it comes to our language, and often people think of it as something that's uh, sentimental. And that's not the idea in Scripture. The word about 98% of the time has to do with the thinking in the soul, the center of a person. We use the word heart to talk about, oh, you know, his heart is just full of joy and happiness. But we also use the word heart when, when we go to the store and you buy artichoke hearts. That's the center of the artichoke, okay? So when you want to talk about the heart of an issue, what are you talking about? You, the, the real guts and core of an issue. So that's how heart is used, the, the real center of a person. As a man thinketh in his soul, his heart, it's translated, gets the right idea, uh, so is he. So heart has to do with, with his thinking. So I would translate this because I have you on my mind. What, what did he say earlier? He says, every time I remember you, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you whenever he's thinking about them. So it's right for me to think this of you all repeating the word for thought, and because I have you in my heart. The heart thinks biblically. It's a metaphor. It's not talking about the beating heart. It's not talking about your emotions. Emotions aren't thoughts. They're just feelings. Um, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the gospel. So you have these two words that are used here in the defense of the gospel is a legal term. It's not an apologetic in the sense of apologizing. It is the legal term for the presentation of a defense for a belief system or for a course of action or in the, in the courtroom. You have the prosecution who lays out their case, and then you have the defense attorney who lays out his case. That would be an apologia. So he defends the gospel. That is part of what every believer should be able to do. First uh, Peter says that we are to always be ready to give an answer, apologia, for the hope that is in us to explain why we have this hope. Now, some people can explain it in a much more sophisticated uh, manner because they've had a lot of study and they understand a lot of things. And other people, it's just very simple, and they'll go to the Scripture and show three or four verses that explain the gospel. Uh, Where you are in your spiritual growth and your knowledge is going to be different from place uh, from place to place. So, so the op- apologia is to defend the gospel. And one of the uh, I pointed this out the other night. One of the worst things that you can do is to somehow validate something that the other side has said. And, and that's that's weak. You don't approve of it. You don't use it. You in the sense of accepting it as as true or valid. And so an apologia is going to stand firmly on the word of God and not compromise the word of God. And I am a firm believer in a system of apologetics called 
presuppositionalism because I recognize that the unbeliever has hidden presuppositions, assumptions about life, and if I try to prove the Bible or prove for Christ or prove the resurrection by accepting and validating his presuppositions, then I've compromised. So, and that's really important. I'm not validating. I'm not going to accept some of his uh, views as true. So that's uh, that's a very important concept to understand. And I covered that a good deal in when we covered First Peter three fifteen on uh, apologia and on apologetics. And then the next word is you not only defend the gospel, but the confirmation of the gospel, which is. Uh, has the idea of confirming or validating the gospel. That's evidence. And you go back to Acts chapter 1, and we read that when Jesus appeared to the, the apostles after the resurrection, he gave them many convincing proofs of his uh, resurrection, that he was alive, and that the, he was now in his resurrection body. And so, the, But the proofs have to be done the right way. There's a right way and a wrong way. And a lot of times you see people appealing to some neutral area, such as history or archaeology or something like that, that, that they think is a neutral fact. But there's no neutral fact. Everything is interpreted. And so you have to be very, very careful there. But that's a whole different, uh, different topic. So then Paul says, let me make sure I finish that verse. Uh, and he says, and... Um, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the gospel, that's his part of his ministry and his evangelism, my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers, are partners with me of grace. So again, it comes back to grace, but their grace here also involves their gracious support of the Apostle Paul. So they are focused on him, supporting him, and he is... Uh, praying that that will continue. And in verse 8 he says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Now here is a word that brings emotion into it. You know, it's not like the emotion is bad. There's good emotion, bad emotion. This is with the affection of of Jesus Christ. And the word thereof in genitive, there's like 20, depending on who you read, 27 or 28 different nuances to a genitive. I know you needed to know that. And so you have to, when you're doing exegesis, you have to decide, okay, what kind of genitive is this? And so when it talks about uh, the affection of Jesus, Jesus Christ, it is talking about Christ's affection for his disciples and how how his love for them was demonstrated. Okay, so this is the word splotnon, which was used several times, usually translated compassion or mercy uh, in, the, um, in the scripture. The, um, the Hebrews were not, Israel, the Israelites were not real, um, shall we say, abstract in their thinking. So when they communicated certain things, they would orient it towards various bodily organs uh, so that if you, you know, just if you had some deep affection or you were deeply moved by somebody, you felt that 
internally, and so that was, uh, you felt it in your gut, and so that was uh, spontanon. And so that, that's, the, that's the idea there, uh, to express affection or mercy or compassion. So that brings us to the next sentence. So the first sentence focuses on everything is related to his thanksgiving to God uh, whenever he remembered them, and that what he's thankful for is not their salvation and it's not their spiritual growth, but it is their participation in his ministry. And that's the focal point. And now he is going to get to his prayer for them. And there are some things that we need to uh, point out, some things we should emphasize for ourselves uh, as we study this. What is this that is going on here? He says, and this I pray, so that this means this, which is I'm about to tell you. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the in knowledge and all discernment. So what he is saying here is that, uh, number one, we see that love grows. Your capacity for love grows. When we start off as babies, we don't have much of a capacity for love. We're simply responding to the fact that those two strange big people keep feeding us and uh, uh, patting us on the back when we feel bad and taking care of us, and that makes us happy. And then as we get a little older, our love begins to develop, and we are hopefully appreciative of what they are doing for us. And again, though, it's just a response to a lot of what they are doing for us. And that works really well until puberty hits, and then all of a sudden it's a different animal. And you, that's when you find out if there's really any any level of love there. And usually, in a lot of cases, there's a period there where there's some uh, manifestation of rebellion or uh, something of that nature. I know uh, when I was growing up, I had a couple of buddies whose sisters hit puberty and went off the rails and then about 10 years later, they realized how much their parents had done for them and came back. So things like that happen. And, um, but, but your love grows. And then you get into your 20s or your 30s and you appreciate your parents even more because you begin to realize how much they may have, uh, given up things they wanted to do in order to take care of you and provide for you and what they taught you. And as you get older, your appreciation and your love for your parents grows in a more mature way that's not just a response to the fact that they're uh, giving you things you like and making you happy. And the same thing is true in the spiritual life, is that our love, our capacity for love grows and expands as we develop. And it, what Paul is praying for is not only a growth of our love, and I'm just dealing with love in principle here, not in relation to God yet or in relation to others, but that, but love itself, uh, and it abounds in knowledge and all discernment. The Greek preposition translated in is the preposition in, and it has a huge range of meaning. But one of its meanings is to talk about something in association with something else. And so love, biblical love, is not an emotion. Uh, 
And that's so difficult for people to, uh, I think in our generation, it's even, it, it's even more difficult for people to understand it because from the time you can watch your computer screen or you can watch the TV, you're just bombarded with superficial concepts related to love. And it relates to a lot of times just to sexual stimulation and it relates it to emotion and how you feel and uh, sentimentality. And yet that's not what, what the, how the Bible deals with love. Love is a mental attitude, not an emotion. And it grows in association with knowledge and discernment. The word for knowledge here is epinosis which has in, uh, in many contexts a, a sense of a more robust sense of knowledge and um, uh, not, not, just, not just knowing. There's, there's overlap between gnosis and epinosis in a lot of passages depending on what the emphasis is and gets complex, but that, that's what love develops in this manner. So it's not something that is devoid of, of knowledge. It is, therefore, if it is developed in relation to knowledge, it is part of the function of our mind or our intellect and not our emotion. That doesn't mean that emotion is bad, and that doesn't mean that the emotions that are generated when you have a deep mental attitude love for somebody are somehow wrong, but when your love for someone is based upon a mental attitude and that mental attitude is based on the integrity and and, and the sufficiency of Scripture, then what that love has is a stability that is not going to be shaken by circumstances. And when our love for somebody is based on circumstances, then when the circumstances change, you get older, you lose your looks, you get heavier, you get ill, you lose your ability to walk, you're sick all the time, then you don't have somebody who's going to um, say, well, I'm going to find somebody healthier or somebody better looking or somebody younger. And we can think of numerous examples, especially among celebrities, when that, that's true. Uh, they get married for some superficial reason, and often I've joked about the fact that, that what you usually uh, run across in a marriage ceremony, uh, what they're really saying when, when they're making their vows is, I love the way you make me feel, and I love all the things you do for me, and I'm looking forward to letting you do that for me for the rest of your life. And then when they stop doing that, then there's, there's trouble. So you have to understand that, that love is based on knowledge and discernment. The only place biblically that you get knowledge and discernment is from the Word. And, and if you're not married to somebody who really has a foundation in the Word, then it can be very rocky. I'm not saying it is, because there are unbelievers who have a measure of integrity and they stabilize, they, they're taught well on establishment principles, and they have stability over time. Um, we don't always know that, though. Uh, there are people I know, I have family members, had family members, they're with the Lord now, and that, that were, I'm not sure if they were, and one of them was, I'm not sure if one was a believer or not, but they had some real rocky roads, but nobody who knew them 
before or later would have known that because it wasn't something that that was announced or well-known or anything like that. They went through trial separations and different things like that. But when they the people have integrity, even just human integrity, apart from that which you get from the word, then they will resolve things. And so uh, love for that that lasts a lifetime is a love that is grounded on this sort of spiritual stability, a spiritual rock. And so Paul says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Why? Uh, this is one of the more interesting things about this passage. In order that... It's not an end in itself that your love will just abound in knowledge and discernment, but it's that you may approve. And here's our word, dokimazo. See how many times this word shows up in these passages related to spiritual life, because ultimately, after we get past verse uh, 9, we get into verse 10, what's the last phrase? Day of Christ, judgment seat of Christ is brought in again. This evaluation. We grow in love in relation to, accompanied by knowledge and discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be pure or unsullied and without blame till the day of Christ. Now, that's an important statement because the choices that a lot of people have before them when they're first saved is between good and bad, okay, especially if you can't, grew up in a home wh- or where you were uh, allowed to do whatever and you had no real moral or ethical foundation. Then you have a lot of choices between good and bad. But when we, you become a believer and after a while you grow, you have choices between different things, all of which are good, but some are more better, more better than other things. They are superior. They are excellent. So the choice is between that which is excellent and that which is good. And a lot of people will choose the good because it's an easier path or because it's, you know, it's more fun or for whatever, and they don't choose the excellent. And what Paul prays is that that love that we have uh, uh, is in association with knowledge and discernment that you may approve the excellent, that you will make the choice to, to apply the excellent, make that choice, go down that path, with the result then that you may be pure and unsullied. The word is translated sincere in a lot of English translations, and again, I have a problem with that because it indicates, uh, you know, a lot of people can be be sincere and be wrong. Uh, that you may be pure is the idea, or unsullied was another term used in the in the lexicons, that you're untainted by sin. It is something very, very positive and without blame. Uh, and uh, the King James, New King James says without offense, but it's without blame, so that you're prepared. Uh, you're living a life producing the gold, silver, and precious stones so that you're prepared for the evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And then we come to this phrase in verse 11, 
having been filled. And I translate it that way because it's the word on the right, plerao, which means to fill or to be fulfilled. It's related to the word for the filling of the Spirit that fills up something. And here it's a perfect passive participle. So perfect tense means it's it's something that's accomplished in the past. It's not something that's being accomplished in the future. And uh, and so the main verb here goes back to uh, verse uh, verse ten uh, that you may approve that you may be pure and unsullied without blame till the day of Christ because already in the past when you get to the judgment seat of Christ it's too late you can't go back and have do overs you have already lived your life made your decisions and done what you're going to do so it's already accomplished. And if you have, uh, if your love has abounded with knowledge and discernment and you've approved the things that are excellent, then you have, by virtue of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, been filled with, with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that gets us the overview of this section. And what I want to begin, and we'll just start a little bit tonight, is to talk about what does the Bible teach about biblical love. We need to understand this. If we're going to talk about uh, love abounding more and more knowledge and discernment, we have to understand some things about, about love. So first point is to remember the role of love in the life of the believer. This is a non-negotiable. John 13, 34, and 35, as Jesus and his now 11 disciples are uh, finishing up with their Seder meal, they are going to leave and make their way uh, from the upper room to, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he begins to teach them about the spiritual life to come. John 13, 14, 15, 16 are all about training the disciples about the spiritual life of the church age. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is the ultimate apologia of the Christian life. Is that's what Jesus says. By this love for one another, all will know that you are my disciples. Not he doesn't say everybody's going to know you're a believer. He says you're going to know your disciples. There's a lot of believers, but they're not a lot of disciples. Believers are anyone who's trusted Christ as Savior, and they can be baby believers that that never get out of diapers. But a disciple is someone who wants to be a learner, wants to study the Scripture, wants to grow and mature in in the spiritual life. But we go back to the beginning when he says a new commandment that's emphasizing that it's something that's different. Actually, it's different from this commandment that's in um, italics there in Galatians 5, uh, 5.14, which comes out of Leviticus 18. I believe that's where it, where it is. You lo- you shall love your neighbor uh, as yourself. Notice that in the Torah, in the Old Testament, what you have in uh, 
in, in that passage is that you are to love your neighbor. Well, there's a difference between that and what Jesus says. He says, love one another. Now, your neighbor can be a believer. Your neighbor can be an unbeliever. Uh, it can be uh, just about anything. Uh, Leviticus 19.18. I knew there it was, I said chapter 18 was verse 18. Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus ratchets it up a whole lot because he says, that you are to love one another, that is, other believers, as I have loved you. See, over here, love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody loves themselves. You know, there's this lie going around that's been going around, came out of psychology, that that big problem people have is self-image. That's what Robert Schuller said. We're going to have a new reformation. Jesus died to give you a new self-image. That is not true. He gave, sent a free copy of that book to every pastor in the country. And, uh, and the whole idea of self-image came out of secular psychology. And the Bible says you're born arrogant and self-absorbed. You have a good self-image. Sometimes you don't live up to your self-image, and so you're down on yourself. But you're only down on yourself because you disappointed yourself. If you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you were a failure. You'd look in the mirror and you'd say, oh, you're so ugly. Isn't that great? What a loser. I'm so happy. But the Bible says you think more of yourself than you ought to think of yourself. And so, uh, but you ought to put your neighbor first. That's, that's what, they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the, in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Put them first. Think of them first. Think of the other person. But now Jesus says to church age believers, that you are to love one another as I loved you. Wow, that's, that's really tough because Jesus loved us to the point of death. He died for us on the cross. He was willing to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, that's, that's a whole different kind of love. Uh, you can't do it, and I can't do it on our own. Uh, so this is the new command, that we love one another as Christ loved us. And that is the sign of a disciple, someone who is growing and maturing in the spiritual life. Now, a second key passage is in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 1 through 8. And I'm just going to look at the first part of it here. And what this, what Paul does through the use of hyperbole, he's not talking literally here. He's talking in exaggerations. He's basically saying, if I can do whatever you can imagine as being the very greatest thing in the possible, but I don't have love, then I'm just nothing. It doesn't matter what I accomplish. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where I go. If I don't have love, I'm nothing. In other words, as a believer, love, biblical love is a central aspect of the spiritual life. So he starts off, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Now, that gets into the whole issue with the spiritual gift of tongues, but he's being hyperbolic. Angels, when angels appear anywhere in the Bible, they're always talking in in human languages. And always talking in Hebrew, mostly in the Old Testament. Uh, so what he's just saying is, if I could speak every language in the world, 
Uh, and even if there were angelic language, every possible a- angelic language, I could do all of that because the Corinthians are all confused with with this ecstatic utterance that was part of the mystery religions. They were confusing ecstatic utterance with what the Bible was talking about in the spiritual gift of tongues. And so he just says, I become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Those were instruments that the pagan priests used to bring attention to themselves. And so he's basically he's saying through these these uh, idioms and images here is if I can do all these wonderful things but I don't have love, then I I am no more significant than any of these pagan priests and priestesses. In verse two he says, although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. In other words, if I'm a super spiritual Christian and God gave me all the possible spiritual gifts, if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. And then the third example he gives is if I give all my goods, everything I own to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burned, I am completely self-sacrificial, but I don't have love, it doesn't do any good. It profits me nothing. And then the last passage I want to refer to in this opening point is that in Galatians 5, 14 down to the end of the chapter is one of the critical passages on the spiritual life. And it starts with a reminder of the command from Leviticus 19:18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 16, Paul says, because you say, how do I do that? Uh, Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. That's my translation, not NKJV. Uh, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. And then we have this discussion about the flesh, or the sin nature wars against the Spirit, Spirit against the flesh. And then you have a listing of the uh, of the attributes of what is the result of walking according to the flesh, and then the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is the, what's produced when we walk by the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. Why did he list love first? Because in 14, that's what he's talking about. So he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. So love is central in the Christian life, and we grow in that. It's not something that will ever come naturally. It's a biblical love, Christian love, is a fruit of the Spirit. You can't get the fruit of the Spirit if you're not walking by the Spirit. You can't gin up uh, biblical love. You can't pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and, and, and make it happen. It only comes as a result of your spiritual growth. So we'll come back next time, and we're going to have a lot of fun because we're going to look a little bit more at 1 Corinthians 13 and the characteristics of love, and then we're going to look at how John deals with it in 1 John and its significance, and so you better have your thinking cap on when we get to 1 John. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the centrality of the spiritual life, walking by the Spirit, 
and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only when we abound in knowledge and discernment along with love that that love really is produced by the Spirit as we are walking by the Spirit. We pray that we might be challenged to be more diligent, to be more focused on our spiritual life, making those issues first and foremost in our priorities. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.